James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's good to be here. 
Um, if you have your Bibles open, it'll be great to have that. Um, we'll refer to it as we go through the passage. We're looking at mostly the first half of James chapter 1 today, but uh, we'll dive around through other parts in the book as well. So have it open. Uh, there is an SMS number here. If you have easy questions, feel free to send your easy questions to that number. If you have hard questions, you can email someone else. Um, and I'm sure the emails won't bounce. No, email me or send through SMS any questions you like. Um, I'm normally out with the kids today, uh, so it's normally my job as kids worker here to be running the kids programs. I'm quite excited to have a little break from that and be up here doing this today. Uh, as Chris mentioned, we've finished the book of Ruth. We had four weeks in Ruth. I had, I think, a really good time nutting through that book. And today we're starting a new series in James. I always enjoy starting a new series, a fresh series, new things to think about. Um, And James is a really interesting book for us to be doing. James, I think, is in some ways a very tough book. And as we saw in chapter 1, which introduces a lot of the ideas in the book, we're going to be really forced to think critically about some uh, very nitty-gritty ideas for everyday life. Um, James is incredibly practical. There are no long theological arguments from James. There's no complex rebuttals of first century heresy. And in fact, the book of James doesn't really talk a lot about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think Jesus is mentioned just maybe twice in the whole book. So it's an interesting book. What James is very interested in is everyday living. Uh, James is so concerned about the down-to-earth, nitty-gritty of the challenge of Christian life in this world. Uh, That's why people love the book of James. It's practical. It just tells us what we need to to do. The book of James will help us really shape our thinking. It's it's about how how should the Christian apply the wisdom of God um, in our lives while we patiently wait for Jesus to come back. How are we to live or wait for Jesus to return in this sin-soaked world? Let me give you a bit of context to the book that we kick off. Uh, James, most commentators believe that the author James is actually uh, James, the brother of Jesus. I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Imagine being the brother or half-brother of Jesus. You know, you're out in the backyard kicking the soccer balls, young kids. And um, as, as you grow up, you come to this realisation that uh, this half-brother of yours actually is the Messiah, the Son of God. So by the time he comes around to writing this book, uh, James can not only call Jesus his half-brother, but he calls him, in verse 1, that he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so who is he writing to? So James, by the time he writes this letter, is in a position of some authority and leadership in the Jerusalem Christian Church, and he addresses his letter to, um, who is it? The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So a generic term, generally meaning the Jews, uh, but at this time there were no 12 tribes left anymore. It's just a term meaning the the scattered Jewish Christians. So James is probably writing to Christians from a Jewish background who have fled from their homes in Jerusalem to the surrounding area. They're the scattered believers. It's probable that, well, it's possible that they scattered after the, the, um, the execution of Stephen, the Apostle Stephen, and maybe that, that, that's kind of in Acts we read that spread the Christians out. And James is writing to these people. See, they, they were people going through a hard time. 
they were struggling. We know from chapter 2, verse 6, about some of the context of their struggles. See, they were, they were mostly poor people, although there were wealthy that came in amongst them. They were generally poor, and they were being exploited by the rich. We read in James chapter 2 that they were dragged to court by the wealthy, that they were uh, exploited and, and accused by those who dishonoured the name of Jesus. See, they were people confronted with the harsh reality of living the Christian life in a world that was opposed to Jesus and a world that didn't seem to do them any favours. In fact, in a world that threw up in front of them a daily challenge to their faith. And to these people, James opens his letter in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Does it surprise you? You see, this is a bit of a flip, isn't it? Joy in trials? Seriously? Is how can the Christian person possibly experience joy or consider their trials as joy? I reckon it's a real question for us, uh, one we don't want to get wrong, because I'm concerned that I'll mislead you today. I caught up with a friend um, recently, and uh, he said, well, what are you doing? What are you working on at the moment? So I told him about James. I said, I'm working on a sermon for James, and James is a book written in the New Testament to Christians who are struggling with suffering. And James tells them to consider their trials as joy, because it produces maturity in their lives. My mate isn't a, a Christian, and I was interested to see how it'd react. Because it's a Christian message, isn't it? It's talking to Christian people. Uh, he said to me, kind of, you know, rose the eyebrows, and said, very carefully, Mike, I I don't want to offend you, but that is a really arrogant thing to say. Um, so he went on to explain that, you know, as a child, he'd suffered a really big loss in his family, and um, the church he was going to at the time, uh, someone went up to him and said, listen, God has his purposes even in this. Um, his reaction, he said, well, was at that point, I decided I didn't want anything to do with God. And see, if we, if we get this idea around suffering wrong, it, it can really crush people. <laughs> so I don't want you to hear me minimising suffering in today's talk. Please don't hear me minimising it. There can be losses and trials that are just crushing. There can be loss and trials that just leaves us feeling in darkness and we just need to allow ourselves to, to react and go through that process of guilt and, uh, not guilt, of um, uh, grief, thank you. You've got to allow yourself to react you know, however you need to react. Uh, in those times, I think it can be incredibly unhelpful to hear someone lightly say from the front of church, consider, consider your trial as joy. I think you need to allow yourselves to, to react to those big losses in life that we have, and maybe you have now. And don't hear me minimizing suffering. But for most of us, and I think for James's people he's writing to, uh, you know, that extreme suffering is not the bread and butter of our everyday life. Um, well, you know, the trials that we experience are a lot more mundane. No less trials, but they're everyday things. What, what challenges, you know, just do you grapple with each day? For me, uh, one of my regular ones is parenting. Uh, there's a few parents here, 
Uh, some of us have, you know, there's a spectrum of challenge as well on what parenting looks like and the challenge that's going to be different for different people. But just yesterday, um, I was about to go and just read through my sermon, preparing for today. Uh, but, we, you know, I was with the kids and we'd had a good day, a uh, good morning. I thought, I'm going to reward the kids. We've got out one of the big Easter eggs left over from April. And so let's, let's do this, guys. Guys, come around as a treat. Uh, let's smash up this Easter egg and eat it. It very quickly devolved into just this smash and grab and screaming. And I thought, what's going on? Yeah, I went from feeling really positive to instantly angry. You know, this is just the daily struggle for me of how do I react to my kids in a loving way? Uh, you know, that, that is a challenge. Uh, and I think that's a trial that legitimately we ought to be putting into this category of uh, trials of many kinds that James is talking about. What are your trials? Maybe you have a conflict at work. That's just this niggling thing each day. Like, How am I going to deal with this person? Maybe your trial is that work is, is just too busy. Maybe your trial is that you don't, you, know, you don't have enough work or you'd like more work. It's unemployment is a, or it can be a real hard challenge. Maybe the challenges that trials that you face, just those frustrations of everyday life. You know, those little things that just seem to come up and get in the way of what you're meant to be doing. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe your trial is often just the reality of aging. It can be different, and there's going to be as many different challenges and trials as there are people here. But James helps us. How should the Christian react to these everyday trials? It's practical. Well, I don't think James is saying that we need to feel happy about our trials. I don't think he's saying, you know, you stubbed your toe, ah, Great joy, you know, praise God, you know, there's a chance to grow here. And I think, I think we're meant to take joy in the pain, that's, uh, you know, what is that called, self-masochism or something, it's, a, it's, it's not that kind of joy. I think, I think what James is saying is um, we can consider our trials as joy when we understand what they can do for us in our lives. If we persevere through a trial, it brings us to greater maturity and completeness. And that's a cause of joy. Let me read from you. It's in verse 2 to 4 of James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And here's a string logic in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance, perseverance finishes its work so that it may be mature and complete not lacking anything. You see the causal string, the links? We get a few of these in James. Uh, we have a, perse- or a trial, a test of faith, can lead to perseverance, which leads to maturity, which is a source of great joy in our lives when we have it. The trial itself doesn't bring joy, but what it does in our lives can. I just want to stop for a minute. Um, I need to... There's just a few things we could trip up on in James, and I want to make sure that we've kind of covered our bases here. One of them is um, someone could hear me saying that they shouldn't take any action to alleviate a trial. So there's going to be some things in our lives that, uh, you know, it might be that we're suffering at the hands of someone else, and the responsible thing to do is not just to suck it up and persevere, but actually go and talk to someone about it. So if that's you, if, if there's a, a trial that is suffering at the hands of someone else, it doesn't mean we should try and we shouldn't try and change the situation. It might be that we need to go and seek some help, um, and that might mean that you can come to someone here. We are 
really working hard at being a community that cares and loves for each other in a practical way. And there might be support here. It might be just you need someone to listen to you or hear your story and they could help you go uh, to professionals to, to get help and seek a next step. So just because we're persevering through a trial doesn't mean we shouldn't speak up if we need to. All right, what about the James's original hearers? Uh, there was lots of trials for them, but one that was in the forefront of James's mind as he writes was their, was their financial situation. James is saying to them, uh, to his original readers, uh, persevere in your faith through financial pressure. Don't turn to greed and sin. Stand strong in your faith till the end. That's how you'll be perfect and complete when you stand before God. And having stood the test, he says in verse 12, you will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Do you wonder, do you ever view your wealth as a trial? Or as a trial for James's original readers? I wonder if you ever view your trials generally as a chance to experience joy in what they can do in your lives. I, I don't see my trials this way as a challenge. Um, I just want them to go away. Like our world, you know, how does our world that we live in want to deal with you know, things that are uncomfortable and a trial? I want to alleviate, alleviate that at all costs. Um, well, perhaps our, our reaction should be, okay, we need to see this as a chance for growth. How do we do that? Well, James gives us the antidote. He says, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Ask God, uh, our good God, to give us wisdom to see joy, the potential for joy and maturity even in our trials. Wisdom to stand in our faith as we persevere through hard stuff. Verse 5, if any of you, this is a great promise, verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given you. Just sit at that verse for a while before you jump to verse 6. You know, actually, this is a great promise from God that He will give us wisdom when we ask for it. It's an incredible promise. We know in this chapter, God gives good gifts. He's the Father of heavenly lights. He doesn't change. He's not going to say to us, well, you asked for wisdom last time, what did you do with it? No, he's going to give us wisdom. He's not going to judge us for how we've responded in the past. He'll give us wisdom when we ask for it. So we'll see in this series that the book of James is full of wisdom. It's very practical. Uh, It's like the New Testament version of Proverbs in many ways. And it's applied wisdom, not just head knowledge. In the midst of trials... James is saying, stand firm in your faith and this is how we are to live or we wait for Christ to come and the book unfolds. It's practical. If you're looking for a, a key verse in this series, a standout verse, I reckon a good place to go would be in chapter 1, verse 21 and to 22. Uh, it says this, as get rid of moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It'd be a great key verse to memorize perhaps this series. So I think the, the applied wisdom of James bites. It's not necessarily always comfortable. It's a 
do what it says, not just listen. We can't puff ourselves up with knowledge if it doesn't translate to behavioural change. See, James won't let us rest in comfortable religion that values knowledge over right living. It exhorts us to single-minded devotion to Christ. And when we pray for wisdom, don't pray as the double-minded doubter. Let's have a look at verse 6 to 8. It follows on from the section that says, pray for doubt, uh, pray, for, <laughs> pray for wisdom, but when you ask for wisdom, uh, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Ah. Uh, speaking of scripture that bites, I wonder if for many of us we read this and go, well, that's me then. Might as well close the Bible and go home. There's no point praying for wisdom. I doubt all the time. Uh, I know that some of us will react to this kind of uh, warning in that way. But before you pack up and go home now, let's have a close look at perhaps what James means by the double-minded doubter. Before we do that, let's have a look. I don't think it's saying that we should never doubt as a Christian. I think we know that that's part of the reality of being a Christian. It's what we do with our doubt that matters, not so much the niggling questions that we think through as we read the Bible. I don't think it's saying that when we pray for wisdom, we need to you know, scrunch up our foreheads, ball our fists, and just produce that remarkable faith that, pop, we get the answer. Um, no, I, I think that what it's saying is that we shouldn't serve two masters as we approach God. It shouldn't be that kind of double-minded. See, Israel knew the heartbeat of their faith. Their catch cry, their central creed, was from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And that was, and they would say this regularly, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. God calls us, He calls His people to be single-minded, to be undivided in our devotion to Him. The double-minded people that James warns are those with a foot in two camps. These are the people actually that don't belong to God. They are the ones that James says in chapter 3 verse 15... Uh, follow the wisdom of the world, that is, he calls this wisdom unspiritual and demonic, rather than the wisdom of God. These are the ones, these double-minded, the ones in chapter 4, James talks about, in verse 4 and 9, they are friends of the world, you can't be friends of the world and friends with God. He calls them double-minded in chapter 4, because they pray out of selfish motivations. They pray to spend what they get on themselves. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. They're tossed about like a wave, a foot in both camps. Um, has anyone ever been kayaking? You know, the school kayak camp, a few nods. I, um, when I taught at a, uh, a high school, I'd often put my hand up to do the Year 10 Outdoor Red Camp, you know, the kayaking camp. I quite enjoy kayaking, it was, I think it's really good fun. Uh, one of the things we do with the kids is uh, we're training them how to how to use a kayak, then it's a raft up. You know, you grab the kayak either side, let's make a raft, it's a long line of kayaks, it's quite stable. Even when there's a bit of a breeze and a few waves, it holds together pretty well. So the emergency, let's raft up, was there's an issue. So they raft up, and I say, right, here's a challenge. We want the kids on each end of the raft to swap kayaks. 
you know, they'd get up and just gingerly walk across and inevitably one kid would come unstuck with one foot in one boat, one foot in the other and deliberately or otherwise, the kids holding the boats would let them drift apart and there would be a few ways and they'd fall in. Um, it was always a good laugh. But to me, <laughs> that, you know, I think when it's not too cold, we could laugh along at their mishap. But uh, the, um, this is the picture, I reckon, of the double-minded man that James is warning against. You know, there's a foot in both boats, it's unstable, they're not going to stand. They're, they've got a foot in two camps. Um, they're, they're kind of saying, I want to see what I can get out of the world, but I'm going to pray to God as well, just in case there's something to this God stuff. You know, I'll see what I can get out of God as well. What I hope is that hearing that explanation of double-mindedness, I think that's how James is talking about it, I hope that hearing that puts your mind at rest and that you think, actually I can have great confidence praying to God, knowing that He's going to hear my prayer and answer it. We're not praying for wisdom because we've got it all together. We're praying for wisdom because we need it to stand. But actually, if you're someone who's heard that and you think, I reckon I might be the double-minded person. I reckon I actually am treating God like a lucky charm to see what I can get. Oh, if that's you, then you better skip to chapter 4 tonight. Have a read. You're actually not too far away from God. He can, even now, bring you back. And the way he does it is spelled out in chapter 4. He says, well, come before God humbly in repentance. So before you pray for wisdom... Pray, pray in repentance first. And James chapter 4 tells us uh, when we humble ourselves before God and come before Him in repentance, He will lift us up. Okay, so what's the logic in James so far? One of the things I struggle with James 1 is that there's kind of actually the whole of James. Just sometimes it feels like there's just a bit here, a bit here, a bit here, and we've got to step back a bit to see what's going on. So in chapter 1, so far, I think, I think we could say, here's the logic. We can consider our, our trials as joy, because when we persevere in them, uh, we'll grow in maturity. We persevere through the trial, we grow in our maturity. And when we, when we pray, we should pray for wisdom to help, to help do this, so that we'll stand. But, you know, if we're double-minded, well, perhaps we need to deal with that first. I think that's what we're up to so far. And then we get to this section, verse 9, on riches. You could take this as a practical example of the wisdom life of trials that we're meant to live. So here it is in chapter 9, the trial of riches. I wonder, do you consider wealth to be a trial? I think it was in, if it James is a readers, I think for some of us we'll go, yeah, actually, at the bank account is a trial. I mean, how do we react when bills come? You know, you open the bill, and you slide it out, and there's that kind of big pink rectangle at the front of it that says overdue. How do, how do you react with that? Like, it's actually, for some of us, it might be that this is a real kind of hard thing, and the heart sinks, and you go, how am I going to pay for this one? Perhaps we're just cursed under our breath, and the internal anxiety levels just notch up a bit. It can be a struggle. You consider it as a potential trial, maybe to be considered with joy. It's a hard call. What about for those that have plenty? 
How do you feel when you look at your bank accounts, you look at the investment portfolios? How does your, what is your heart doing in that moment? Do you look at your wealth with humility and see it for a potential trap as a trial? You know, we're such creatures of the world, it's really hard to untangle all this, I think. We're such creatures of the world that I think we are too easily fooled into looking at our wealth as a source of security. Uh, we look at it and think somehow that it equates to safety or security. Well, whether rich or poor, money can put a lot of pressure. I think it does put a lot of pressure on believers. James has got quite a bit to say about it. James applies the wisdom of God to this common trial and he tells us to just take a big step back, a big step back from the wealth that we have or the lack of it and see it from the perspective of eternity. And this is hard. In verse 9, James says, believers in a lowly or believers in a humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. It's not a flip, just a bit like taking joy in trials as a flip. Here we go, believers in humble, the lowly position, or take pride in their high position. What high position do the poor have that he's writing to? What is their high position? Well, they're heirs to the riches of the kingdom of God. James chapter 2, verse 5, it puts it this way, Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit a kingdom that he promised to those who love him? And the perspective of eternal riches, our current bank account is probably not as important. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be a trial sometimes, but I think the perspective of eternity can really help. That's where our riches must lie. That's where our trust should be. What about the rich? I think the rich uh, get a harder, uh, a harder challenge here than the poor. Uh, in verse 10 and 11 it says, But the rich, well, we should take pride in our humiliation since the rich will, since we will pass away like a wild flower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plants. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. The rich should consider their wealth from the perspective of eternity too. See, you can't find peace and security in wealth, not now and certainly not in the life to come. We can't take it with us. We know this, it's temporary. It's temporary, it fades away as surely as we will. It's humiliating, isn't it? What we have now isn't going to last. But take pride in that humiliation because the riches that count are the eternal life that we have with the Father, that's where our hope and security must lie. Wealth will fade away. Our life with Jesus is forever. So wealth, I think, is a trial. It's going to be um, more of a trial at some points in our life than others. For some, it might just feel like it's an ongoing trial for, for a long time, and it will test our faith. How are we going to persevere through the trial of wealth? How are we going to view our wealth from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective. James says, pray for wisdom. Wisdom to put wealth in its proper place. Wisdom to see from the perspective of God. Uh, here's a 
possible application for you, a challenge you might like to do uh, before bed tonight. Uh, why not log into your bank accounts, get on the computer if that's how you do it, um, and look at all the numbers that are there, look at the, the mortgages and the deficits or the investments, and, and look at it for what it is, and then pray for wisdom. Pray something like, Lord, don't let this trial tempt me away from you. Help me to see even this as an opportunity to persevere in my faith as I grow to maturity. Help me to see this as a trial and, and, and maybe, Lord, help me to actually see joy in this if it can help me to stand in my faith and grow in my maturity. Then read James one twelve. Blessed are those who persevere under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, that's, that's the riches that count in the end, the crown of life. So we need wisdom from God to see our trials and temptations through the lens of eternity. What, it, what does it matter when stacked up against eternity? Now, we come to the next section um, on temptation in James. How are we going so far? James making us feel comfortable? Um, this is in verse 13. It's worth knowing that when James talks about temptation, it's actually the same word in the original language as trial. So trial and tempt, it's the same word. It's just used in different ways, in different contexts. So think of it this way. A trial is something that happens to us. It's external to us. A trial could be, and was for these people, uh, poverty. You know, their wealth was a trial. It's external. Um, a temptation is internal. It's the desire from within, like uh, greed. So they're different, but they are connected. So here's some examples. A trial might be wealth, but the temptation associated with it might be a temptation to, to greed or pride or steal. The trial might be frustrations at the pressures on the home front, just the challenges of a messy home life. It's an external trial to us, but the temptation could be to maybe seek comfort in that work relationship that you know is unhealthy. How should the Christian respond to temptation? Let me give you three things from James. Um, this is not a comprehensive list of dealing with temptation. Just three things that come out of this passage. Firstly, don't blame God. God isn't going to tempt us. It says in verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. You kind of see the logic if we're saying that a temptation uh, could lead to maturity when we persevere. People might say, oh, well, maybe God's given me the temptation. Or here James is saying, no. Um, when tempted, don't say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. So we're all tempted by sin because you know, we live in this world. Although we don't belong to it, we still are affected by the, the sinful world around us. We're going to be tempted. It's normal to be tempted, and when it happens... Let's not say, oh, God is doing this to me. Secondly, persevere. Secondly, understand that, um, the, sorry. Secondly, understand the seriousness of temptation. So verse 15 gives us another one of these causal strings. 
that when tempted, understand its seriousness of it. Verse 15 says, and here we go, here's the linking causes. Uh, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. This is an ugly baby. Look at the connection here. Uh, Desire is our internal temptation. If we let it conceive, it gives birth to sin, which creates death when it's fully grown. See, it's not sin to be tempted, but feeding that sinful desire, allowing it to grow and take hold of you, well, that's going to lead to sin. And unchecked, unrepented sin, in the end, leads to death. Treat sin seriously. Bring it humbly before God. Confess it. Again, in chapter 4, it says, He will lift us up. We know He is gracious and forgiving and we can be forgiven because of the work of Christ. But treat sin seriously. One of my mates says, having trouble with temptation sin, take it out the backyard and kick it around. Uh, It says just the idea of work on it, take it seriously. So how, how is the Christian to respond to temptation, the reality of living in the world? Firstly, don't blame God. Secondly, take it seriously. And thirdly, Well, ask God for wisdom to persevere through it. He said He'll give us wisdom when we pray. So I think we can view temptation as a trial. Not a trial from God, but a trial nonetheless. Now, feel free to disagree with me on this one. I'm not tied to it, but I think um, the way this chapter is written with trial, temptation, trial, I think temptation can be read in that broader category of trial that we read about in verse 2. If this is the case, then we can consider even our internal struggle with temptation as an opportunity to persevere and grow in maturity. So this is a bit of a head shift for me. Um, Normally when I'm aware that I'm being tempted, if I'm aware actually that I'm being tempted to say or do something that I know I shouldn't, My first reaction isn't to say, uh, God, give me joy in this because it can lead to perseverance and maturity. My first reaction, if I pray at all, is to say, God, take it away. Make it go away. Take this temptation from me. I just kind of try and suppress it. And I'm disappointed and I'm frustrated at myself. And I I, I just, God, take it away. Well, maybe that's okay, but perhaps my first prayer when I'm facing temptation shouldn't be take it away. I should be praying, God, give me wisdom to persevere through this temptation so I can grow in maturity. I wonder what temptations you struggle with each day. Uh, It's no good blaming God for our temptations and internal trials, but we can pray to Him. We can ask for him to give us wisdom to persevere through it, standing strong in our faith. And verse 17 says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. It does not change like shifting shadows. It's the same today, yesterday and forever. He will give us good gifts. and will give us wisdom when we ask for it. And he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. See, the challenge and joy of the Christian life is to live 
out the word of truth planted in us. We're to live out that gospel of Jesus Christ that he has planted in our lives. See, we come to God with nothing as, as unbelievers. When we come to God, we come empty, we come humbly, not by works so that no one can boast. We come to God and he gives us good gifts. He gives us birth through the word of truth. How do we to live as Christians in this world, in this sin-soaked world, while we wait for his return? Or while we wait for the crown of life that is promised? We're to live out the word in us. We are to persevere through the myriad trials and temptations that we face each day. And we're to do this calling out to God for wisdom to persevere and stand. Can't do it on our own. He will give us his spirit, although it doesn't talk about the spirit in this book. And we know from elsewhere, he gives us his spirit to say no and persevere. Studying James over the next four weeks is not always going to be comfortable, but it will be a necessary corrective to comfortable religion, a religion that values intellect over integrity, pleasure over persistence, and worldliness over wisdom. Chapter 1 finishes... Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you, thank you that you are the Father of heavenly lights. You do not change like shifting shadows. You give us good gifts each day. Thank you that you have planted the word of truth in us, the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. Help us to accept this word and live it out. Give us your wisdom to see our daily trials and temptations from the perspective of eternity. Help us to be wise and persevere through them, growing to full maturity in you. And we pray this through the name of your Son, Jesus, through whom we have forgiveness and life. Amen.